Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and today I am joined by a special guest, Sam Amadi. Sam is the senior pastor at Hunzinger Lane Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also an editor at Nine Marks, hosts the podcast Bible Talk for Nine Marks, and is the author of several books. Today we're going to be discussing his book, From Prisoner to Prince, The Joseph Story in Biblical Theology, which came out earlier this year. Uh, This conversation with Sam is wide-ranging. We start with biblical theology. What is it? Why does it matter? And uh, that's his his discipline. This book started out as his dissertation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. But the heart of the conversation is how does the Bible come together around certain themes? And the theme that he's chosen to take up in this book is the Joseph story. And as you'll hear in the conversation, the Joseph story isn't quite as simple as it sounds. It's You read it as the capstone of the book of Genesis, but it's backward-looking and forward-looking. It uh, encapsulates the themes of Genesis, fulfills the covenant with Abraham in, in a certain way, but it also points ahead to a greater fulfillment. And uh, Joseph himself is a type of future characters like Daniel and ultimately of Christ. So one of the things I enjoyed about Sam is he's not just a scholar, he's a pastor as well. And so he has an eye towards learning to read the Bible better, learning to uh, grow in our own devotional time with the Lord. And that uh, was a really enjoyable conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Sam Amadi. Sam Amadi, thanks so much for coming on the So We Speak podcast this morning. And thanks so much for your book, From Prisoner to Prince. It was one that I really enjoyed reading. I'm excited to get to talk about it with you. Thanks, brother. It's a delight to be here. So when we think about the Joseph story, uh, kind of my burning question that I've really had unanswered until I read your book was what you opened the book with. And the opening line of the book is, Moses affords Joseph more time in the foreground of the Genesis narrative than any other character in the book. A striking fact given the significance of Genesis' other main characters, Adam, Noah, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was just a great way to encapsulate what I think maybe any person on a Bible reading plan has wondered. Why is there so much time given in this last story in Genesis? Yeah, that's what prompted me uh, even to begin this investigation into the Joseph story. Um, uh, You know, my brother, uh, when he was going through seminary and when he was doing his PhD, uh, he wrote his dissertation on Psalm 110 which discusses Melchizedek, right? And Melchizedek gets uh, a a lot of time uh, spent uh, uh, discussing him uh, in Psalm 110, in Hebrews, um, and he only appears in Genesis 14. Uh, Whereas Joseph takes up 14 chapters of Genesis, and he doesn't get nearly the amount of time in the rest of scripture that Melchizedek does. Mm -hmm. So he's such a you know, he's, he's, he's kind of mysterious in that way, in terms of why does Moses spend some t- so much time talking about him and, and why is he given uh, such little attention uh, in the rest of the Old Testament and by the New Testament authors? So, uh, you know, I'm reading uh, the Joseph story um, uh, one year in my daily devotionals while I'm uh, going through seminary and uh, working on my PhD and thinking about what to, what to write a dissertation on. And as, as, as I was reading the Joseph story, uh, you know, these questions were gnawing at me. And I was just thinking about the question, if I were to preach this, mm-hmm. how would I preach it? Uh, and I didn't feel like I had good answers to those questions. And I also didn't feel like I was getting tons of help uh, from commentaries or from other books 
that I was looking on with regard to the Joseph story. Not that there wasn't good stuff there. There's other wonderful stuff in the Joseph story, but I, but I just felt like there was, there was unanswered questions that I had. Uh, and so this project, uh, this book was really birthed out of uh, my own burden to understand why does Moses spend so much time talking about Joseph uh, and, and, and what's its significance in the biblical storyline? How would I preach this to a congregation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that this story is often preached is kind of with the moral lesson approach that you see in the Old Testament sometimes where you fast forward through those 14 chapters and you get to the very end of Genesis chapter 50 when you have that famous line where his brothers uh, basically say, well, now that our father's dead, are you going to come after us? And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And you can draw kind of a uh, moral lesson there against revenge or, uh, you know, God's providence and things like that. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily uh, a bad lesson to draw. But one of the things that you do in the book is just show how much richer the culmination of that story is, that there's actually a lot more going on here than just a little object lesson at the end of how we should behave towards people that have wronged us. And one of the things is, I I think even that quote at the end of Genesis 50 is illuminated when you start to see the connections to the rest of the story. And uh, so one of the approaches you take in the book is you're reading this from through a biblical theological lens um, and through a canonical lens. And so before we even get into the substance of the book, I, I just wanted to back up and say, what is biblical theology um, and, and why, what difference does it make when you read a story like Joseph? Yeah, well, let me, let me answer that by, uh, giving you kind of a, a bad way of reading the Joseph story, uh, a, a way that has, uh, dominated, uh, much of kind of unbelieving critical scholarship, uh, over the last two or 300 years. Um, as I was reading literature on the Joseph story, what I discovered is that many scholars, again, critical, unbelieving scholars, what they suggest is that the Joseph story doesn't come from Moses. It's actually birthed out of kind of the the wisdom tradition, right? The schools of wisdom that that come from from Solomon uh, in, you know, the 10th and 9th century BC, uh, and that it was later kind of inserted into the Joseph story uh, as a way of Uh, and and kind of retooled in order to explain how Israel got from the land of Canaan into the land of Egypt. So it's a bridge book Mm -hmm. uh, or or it's a bridge story, basically to explain uh, the change of geography. uh, But it just has a bunch of moral lessons. And that's why the Joseph story doesn't have any relationship to the story of creation, the Abrahamic covenant, any of the themes that have been developing through Genesis. It's kind of its own isolated unit. Uh, that doesn't have any sort of meaningful interaction with what's come before. Uh, I, I reject that uh, way of looking at the Bible, one, because I think Jesus rejected that way of, of reading the Bible. And Jesus, I think, affirmed uh, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and we should see this as coming from a single author, and that all of these things have been put together intentionally under the divine inspiration of the Spirit. And so what I wanted to do was read the Joseph story in the way that the Bible wants to be read. Mm -hmm. And that is when we read the Bible, uh, we have to read it on its own terms and we have to read it in its own context. What do I mean by that? Well, reading the Bible on its own terms means that we read it as a divine human book. 
We recognize that it has a human author who spoke in a particular context and used words that we understand through grammatical historical exegesis, but it also comes from a divine author. And, and therefore, we have to read every part of scripture in light of all of scripture, particularly in light of its culmination in Jesus Christ, God's climactic revelation of himself mm-hmm. in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the task of biblical theology, reading the Bible, biblically, theologically, simply means reading the Bible on its own terms and reading any part of scripture in the context of the whole of scripture. Reading Genesis in light of everything that comes after it, particularly God's final revelation of himself in Christ. And the way that we do that is by reading scripture with the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors themselves. What I mean by that is uh, I don't, I don't want to come to the Bible with my own, you know, preconceived notions of, of how to do hermeneutics and um, uh, kind of my own ideas for how to interpret. I'm a follower of Jesus and I think Jesus got up out of the grave and Um, so that means I want to read the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible. And I want to read the Bible the way the disciples read the Bible. So what I want to do is, uh, and I want to read old Testament scriptures the way later old Testament prophets read those scriptures. So what I want to do is go into the Bible and I want to ask, what did Moses intend when he wrote this? And then I want to go to later scriptures like the prophets, Daniel, Jesus, and the apostles. And I want to ask, how did they interpret this passage of scripture? Because I want to read it from their interpretive perspective and follow their practices. I think that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus as we read scripture. Yeah, that's one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is letting scripture interpret scripture and kind of getting into the Bible's own logic and interpretive lenses uh, is better than bringing in our own, which we're all prone to do. Um, So I think the way you've, the way you set that up kind of, uh, s- sets up a big idea of the book is, so if we're going to read the Joseph story the way the Bible does, why doesn't the rest of the Bible make such a big deal out of the Joseph story? And uh, some of that is maybe not bringing the right tools. Some of that is not looking at the right places. But how do you answer that? That uh, it's not mentioned in that many other places, but it's so significant in Genesis. Yeah, I think I think that um, uh, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one because when you look at the architecture of the Bible, um, uh, later biblical authors tend to focus on kind of the, the main theological hotspots of scripture, so to speak. And those hotspots tend to be the covenants. Um, you know, I, I do a lecture uh, on kind of the, the story of the whole Bible in 60 minutes. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I say in that lecture is... Um, you know, how, how is it even possible to do the story of the whole Bible in 60 minutes? Well, when you look at the Bible and you look at the architecture of scripture, you start to notice something really interesting. The Bible kind of zooms in on just five or six people in any great detail, right? You've got Adam and then it kind of races through a thousand years. And you get to Noah and it races through a thousand years. You get to Abraham and his family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons, Right. Uh, and then it races through 400 years. You camp out on Moses for five books. Uh, and then you have Joshua kind of as the epilogue to the Pentateuch. Uh, and then the rest of the Bible is about David, right? Ruth is about the birth of David. <laughs> Judges about the need for David. First day exam is about David. Prophets are about a coming new David. Mm-hmm. So the Bible focuses on those characters. Why? Because those are the characters with whom God makes covenants. 
And so the New Testament authors focused mainly on developing, uh, you know, how to read the Bible in light of God's unfolding plan of the covenants, because that gives us the backbone uh, for the understanding of how scripture unfolds. I think Joseph is a, uh, it's, it's kind of like a sub point as it were within the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. Uh, so I think scripture helps us understand the story of Joseph, not necessarily by focusing on the Joseph story all the time, but by focusing a lot of attention on the Abrahamic covenant, which gives us the paradigm by which we can interpret the Joseph story. I think a second thing is Joseph doesn't get a lot of explicit mentions in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, though he does get a few, and they are very significant. Acts 7, for instance, I think is a hugely significant New Testament explanation of the Joseph story, uh, which confirms, um, uh, or, or rather, it, it doesn't confirm me, I'm, I'm following Stephen's pattern in how to interpret the Joseph story. Um, I think it shows that Jesus is, a, or that Joseph is a type of the Messiah. So we do get these explicit references that are hugely important. What we also get is a lot of allusions and echoes to the Joseph story, where Joseph's name isn't mentioned, but the pattern of his life is used as a template or a model or a type for how God acts in biblical history. One chief example would be the story of Daniel, especially Daniel chapter two, where basically the sequence of events that Daniel goes through, and, Dan, and I understand Daniel to have written Daniel, Daniel's understanding of his own life is one of a new Joseph. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he develops that for us, not by just coming out and saying, I'm a new Joseph, but by telling us the details of his life and showing how the pattern of his own life models the pattern of Joseph's life. And, and then he draws out the significance uh, for us uh, of that, which we can talk about later. Yeah. I, I thought that with the way you do typology patterns, these templates that are seen throughout scripture was one of the stronger elements of the book and seeing how, and I, and I think this probably is one of the stronger scholarly and layperson takeaways from the book is Joseph is a type of the Messiah. Um, on the one hand, I think maybe some scholars would disagree with that from a technical standpoint. And I think sometimes we, we might just miss that <laughs> just from a Bible reading standpoint. H how do you go about proving that? Or how, how do you go about seeing that in the Joseph story? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. It's one of the main questions that drove me to this project, because uh, if you look in the history of, of the church, understanding Joseph as a type of the Messiah uh, was something that everybody affirmed and everybody assumed in the pre-Enlightenment era. Uh, and even in the post-Enlightenment era, uh, from uh, those theologians uh, that you know I would understand to be uh, faithfully carrying on the preaching of God's word, um, uh, in terms of the Puritans and Spurgeon, you know, and these types of individuals. Um, but what you have, uh, in those, uh, pre-modern authors and in the Puritans and Spurgeon is, is an affirmation that Joseph is a type with really no defense of it. It's just kind of assumed on their part. Mm -hmm. Once you get into modern scholarship, um, where, uh, there's more, uh, maybe emphasis or, or focus given to methodology, uh, to kind of uh, hermeneutical defense uh, of, of the uh, assertions that you're making. Uh, and certainly with kind of, kind of modern biblical theological scholarship, defining how it is that we identify types and make exegetical textual cases for them. Um, what I wanted to do was take the best of that 
evangelical reformed hermeneutical thinking. Sorry if my phone just uh, dinged there. Uh, what I wanted to do was take uh, the best of that evangelical reformed hermeneutical thinking about biblical theology and types and apply it to the Joseph story. Say, all right, if we're 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 self-consciously applying hermeneutical principles here, let's see what we come up with, uh, and let's see if let's see if there's evidence from within the Joseph story itself that Joseph is a type of the Messiah that Moses himself wants us to see that Joseph is a type of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would argue that he is uh, on two grounds. Okay. One more big picture and one just more textual. Okay. The, the big picture grounds is what is Joseph? What's the point of the Joseph story in the book of Genesis? And what I would argue is that Joseph is a character who brings fulfillment and brings resolution, okay? So if you look at uh, some of the uh, big ideas, the big themes in the story of Genesis, there's, there's famine. Well, the story of Genesis takes us from famine to feast as Joseph resolves the problem of famine. There's the problem of fratricide, right? Brother killing brother, Cain and Abel. And the story of Genesis takes us uh, from fratricide to forgiveness as Joseph forgives the brothers who tried to kill him. So reversal of the Cain and Abel story. There's also the element of fulfillment, right? You look at the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing, kingship. Well, we could walk through all of those different elements. Maybe we will. Uh, and we could show how Joseph is a character that brings fulfillment to these promises. Now, not the ultimate fulfillment, of course. I mean, he, he doesn't usher in the eschaton, uh, <laughs> but but a true fulfillment, a real fulfillment, uh, a genuine fulfillment, a fulfillment that anticipates something greater, but a fulfillment nonetheless. And so, I think when you ask what's the role of the of Joseph within the Abrahamic covenant, he's the fulfillment character. We are seeing in Joseph how God fulfills the Abrahamic promises. Oh, and what does it look like? It looks like a rejected royal son who forgives those who have sinned against him and rises, mm. you know, to the heights of power over all of creation. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture, just reading within the framework of the covenant, <clears throat> uh, a quicker, uh, kind of more textual proof texty um, way of, of showing that uh, we should understand uh, Joseph to be a type of Christ would be to look at Genesis 49, eight. And this, I think is the clearest evidence from within the Joseph story itself, that Moses, the author of this story intends for us to see Joseph's life as a template or a model of something that is to come. So in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his children and he's talking to them about the days to come, right? He's speaking into the future. Uh, he's talking about the eschatological day. In verse eight, he turns his attention to his son, Judah. And what he does is he, he speaks about, you know, the coming uh, future, but, but by using just kind of the name of the individual leader of the tribe. So he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Let's play on words. Judah, your brothers will yada you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. So this is language that's elusive to Genesis 3.15. You have a hand on a neck in Genesis 3.15. You have a heel on a, a head, crushing a head. So the idea of mortal combat uh, uh, between you know, the people of God, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Uh, 
Um, and then, of course, in verse 10, uh, this is clearly, a, you know, a messianic prophecy about a, a king who's going to come from Judah's line. The scepter is not going to depart from, from between his feet. So, so Judah, Jacob here is talking about a, a king who's going to come from the line of Judah. And um, he is going to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Of course, it raises the question, okay, this king is going to come from the line of Judah. What's he going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, what type of person should we expect? Well, the end of verse eight, I think is extraordinarily important. Judah, your father's sons shall bow down before you. That language of the father's sons, 11 brothers coming and bowing down, the Hebrew word, before him. Well, that's language that was used three times in Genesis 37 in Joseph's dreams, when it described his 11 brothers bowing down to him, the sons of his father. And then in Genesis 42 and 43 and 44, uh, when the brothers, uh, you know, in, in the actual historical account is they come to Egypt and they meet Joseph another three times, they come and they hishtahawa before Joseph, they bow down before him. So, you know, my contention is, Let's imagine it's 1446 BC. Genesis is hot <laughs> off the press. You're reading through it. You get to Genesis 49 and you're like, wow, look at this messianic prophecy. The king of Israel is going to come from the line of Judah. He's going to fulfill Genesis 315. What's this guy going to look like? Well, you're going to read that line. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And your first frame of reference is going to be, oh my word, that's the story we just read. Right. His father's sons, his 11 brothers are going to come bow down before him. This coming king from Judah is going to look like Joseph. Mm. I think in this passage, what Moses does is he wraps up the entire Joseph story in that one line and shows us it's a pattern. It's an eschatological pattern of the coming king of Judah, yeah. who, is, who is to come. That was a really fascinating argument in the book, one that I had not considered, but I love that you, you're saying, no, we can stake this on the very text itself, um, that this, this type is there. It, it makes me wonder, though, and, I, and I've wondered this before, why don't you think that the line of of Jesus comes through the line of Joseph? Why does it? Why does why Judah instead of Joseph? If you read the Genesis story, Joseph is the prominent son, and we even say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We don't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. What what's going on there? Yeah. So so I um, you know I've, I've considered this question some, and it's super interesting. I you know I don't think I've done a single interview, and I've I've done a lot of them uh, that this question's not been asked. And so I don't know if I have a sufficient answer, but here's my kind of best guess at what's going on. I think when you look at Genesis, um, you know, which is a book kind of brimming with genealogies. And what do you have? You have linear genealogies, right? Father to son, father to son, um, father to single heir of the promise to single heir of the promise. And that pattern basically continues from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 36. So it's, um, it's Adam to Seth, but not to Cain, right? And then it's Seth to his son, but not, you know, to anyone else. Um, and then it's Abraham to Isaac, but not to Ishmael. And then Isaac to Jacob, but not to Esau. Um, so these, you have these linear genealogies that are identifying a single seed that is the recipient of the promise. Now, you have segmented genealogies in, in the rest of Genesis, but typically those are genealogies defining basically the world, right? The, uh, the, 
the nations of the earth that that the single seed of Abraham is going to bless. Now, all of this changes once you hit Genesis 37, because the promise of the covenant no longer goes from Abraham to Isaac to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob to a single seed. Instead, it goes to all 12 children. They're all covenant children. They all are part of the people of God. They all belong in the Abrahamic covenant. So now I think what you're doing is you're, as it were, moving into, you know, what I call Abrahamic covenant 2.0. You're moving into a new stage of the Abrahamic covenant where instead of a singular individual kind of embodying the covenant promises, you have now 12 individuals who are the heads of the nation, right? The, the, in these 12 people, you have you know, the representative nation as a whole. So what's happening is it seems to me the typological patterns and structures and the prophetic expectations of the Abrahamic covenant are now, and I know this is a fake word, but they are being complexified. <laughs> They're no longer being embodied in just a singular individual, but now in multiple individuals and in multiple institutions in Israel, right? So uh, even going into the next book, we're going to have separations between kings and priests and prophets and the temple and the sacrificial system, right? All the typological structures are becoming more complex. I think we're seeing the first evidence of that right here in the Joseph story, where you have Joseph, who's a type of the Messiah, but then you also have Judah, but, but this type of the Messiah is going to look like a, a, someone from the line of Judah. Now, why Judah? Well, I think it's because if we looked at Judah and his storyline here in Genesis 37 to 50, what we would also discover is that there are things in his life that suggest he's part of a pattern that's expecting some sort of greater fulfillment. I mean, he's a real scoundrel at the beginning of the book. Um, but at the end of 38, he repents of his sin. And, you know, it's interesting how Moses himself draws together all sorts of parallels between Judah and Joseph. To where by the time you come to Genesis 44, Judah is offering himself as the substitutionary sacrifice to save Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And 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 there's other kind of points of contact that uh, that Moses has been drawing between Joseph and Judah. So really, when we get to Genesis 49, 8, I think if we've been reading the story of Joseph carefully, uh, what we'll find is that this isn't coming out of the blue. This is actually the culmination of all sorts of contrasts and comparisons that Moses has been making between Joseph and Judah, because between the two of them, he's been creating a composite picture of what this eschatological Messiah is going to look like. Uh, and then it all kind of gets, gets encapsulated there in Genesis 49, eight, mm. where we learn, okay, the Messiah is going to come from Judah's line, but he's going to look like Joseph. Right. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a fascinating question, and um, I think you make a good argument for it. And and I think the book too is is interesting in that uh, the fulfillment that Joseph provides and the fulfillment that Jesus provides are related, regardless mm -hmm. of the bloodline, um, because you trace these three threads: kingship, seed, and then land and and blessing. Yeah, where. Joseph is kind of an initial fulfillment in the scope of Genesis, connects mm -hmm. with the preceding narratives, kind of summarizes and then embodies the fulfillment of those, but then also points ahead to a greater fulfillment in Jesus. And so in that way, you can start to tie your whole Old Testament together. 
I thought there were two other Old Testament fulfillments uh, that were really intriguing that, you know, if you want to take that as a start in Genesis and then look for Joseph kinds of storylines in the rest of your Old Testament, the story of humiliation and exaltation that you point out is a, is a way that God likes to tell stories, whether it's Joseph or Daniel and, of course, Christ ultimately. And then uh, through the exile, I thought that was another intriguing one that we can actually see part of the Joseph story in the later exile. Talk a little bit about how you might use what you lay out with Joseph in Genesis to begin to understand some of these bigger themes in the Old Testament. Yeah. So what you're, um, uh, you know, what you're talking about there in terms of Joseph um, completing Genesis while at the same and resolving Genesis while at the same time pointing to something greater. Um, the illustration I like to use uh, to describe that phenomenon, to show that we kind of intuitively have a category for this. Uh, is to talk about the original Star Wars, right? So imagine it's 1977, you go to uh, the movie theater, you watch A New Hope, and um, you come to the end of that movie, right? Let's say you've watched the whole movie, you're walking out, you're talking about it with your friends. Um, nobody walks out of that movie and says, well, this thing, I mean, it didn't have an ending. There was no resolution. You know, I feel like I've been cheated of a, of a story, no, I mean, the Death Star gets destroyed and everybody gets a medal and, you know, the, uh, the rebellion is saved. You walk out of that movie and you feel like that was a satisfying resolution to that movie. And you also walk out of that movie and say, boy, I can't wait for the sequel. Mm -hmm. You know there's a sequel because Darth Vader got away and the Empire's still out there and Luke's not a Jedi. You know, like there's, there's an anticipation of something greater, even though you felt a sense of resolution. That's the right. story of Joseph. You really feel that resolution, even as you anticipate something greater. Yeah, with regard to the exile, um, you know, one, one thing that's interesting about the story of Joseph is um, while Israel is in the land, you don't have uh, many stories, let's say in Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, that echo the story of Joseph. Now there's some of that there, right? David comes to the throne and he's 30, just as Joseph does. And so does Ezekiel, the prophet, you know, takes his office at the age of 30. And so do the priests, you know, take their office at the age of 30, right? So there's patterns there that biblical authors pick up on. Uh, but what you really see is uh, a uh, kind of a, a, a blossoming of all sorts of figures who look like Joseph when Israel is in exile. Um, you see that in Daniel, you see it in Esther, you see it in Mordecai, you see it in uh, Jehoiachin. And even the language of Esther used to describe Esther and Mordecai, the language used to describe Daniel is often language that's pulled directly uh, out, of, out of the story of Joseph. Uh, the best example here is Daniel 2. Uh, there's the chart in my book uh, that comes from uh, uh, an, an excellent article uh, by a brother named Josh Philpot, who, um, you know, kind of charts all of the linguistic correspondences between uh, Genesis 41 and Daniel 2. Okay, wh why would we have this, uh, uh, this kind of multiplication of Joseph-like figures in the exile? Well, again, let's go back and think about the Joseph story. What's going on in the Joseph story? Well, Joseph's life, as it were, is uh, a, uh, a picture 
of how God saves his people in the exile. Um, uh, God turns evil on its head. Uh, God uses the worst of intentions to bring about good for the people of Israel, even to save them from their enemies, save them from famine, to preserve them uh, from, uh, from either you know, the moral pollution of being integrated with the nations or from destruction, from, from famine, from the land. Uh, so God twists uh, evil on its head. He, he brings good out of evil. And he does that by, you know, sending uh, a, a righteous seed of Abraham, you know, into the very belly of the beast, you know, who raises, uh, you know, he gets raised to the right hand of power, uh, and then from that position is able to save the people of Israel. And then his own life, as it were, is a, a harbinger or a signpost that shows you're not going to be left here. God's going to take you back into the land. Um, that's, that's uh, you know, you, you even think about Joseph's final words. That's what he tells his brothers. Look, the Lord's going to take you back into the land of Canaan. And when he does, you better take my bones with you. Uh, cause the Lord, I, I think what he's saying there is cause the Lord's going to raise me from the dead and I expect to inherit the prompts. Right. Um, and so, uh, and, and there's all sorts of parallels between Joseph's final words and Jacob's final words, I think, which, you know, creates kind of this expectation of just as Jacob after his death went on an exodus back into the land of promise. So Joseph's going to go on an exodus back into the land of promise. So here comes Daniel, here comes Esther, here comes Mordecai. They're all Joseph like characters. What's the point of this? Hey, everybody in exile, remember we've been in this place before. Hmm. And remember how God raised up a righteous figure to preserve our lives and to deliver us and to ultimately his life was a signpost that the Lord's going to bring us back into the land. Well, that's happening now. Daniel, Esther, Mordecai. Yeah. These are righteous seeds that the Lord is, you know, bringing up into the right hand of power to deliver the people of Israel to preserve them in exile. And just as the Lord use Joseph's life to get the people back into the land. Our lives are a sign that the Lord's going to deliver on his promise and he's going to bring us back into the land. Yeah. And I, I, you can see that theme everywhere. Once you lay it out that way, I think it's so evident. I'm working on a uh, preaching guide right now for the book of Haggai. And I mean, that theme of God raising up somebody in the exile is so clear with Sarah Babel in that story. And uh, so once you see it, you start to see it everywhere, which I think is just one of the beautiful things about Biblical theology and typology is it does start to tie uh, the Bible together, but it also, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, it it starts to refine our lenses to be more like the biblical authors and certainly like the Holy Spirit uh, who inspired it. I I don't want to pass by the most explicit New Testament mention of Joseph, which is in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter seven. Uh, Of course, he's doing a he's doing a little bit of a catalog of some of the famous dealings of God with man in the Old Testament. What do you think's going on there? What do you make of this speech and and Joseph's role in it? Yeah, I think uh, Joseph, Joseph is doing, I mean, it's just, it's just an incredible biblical theology in Acts 7. Um, you know, one way to learn biblical theology is, uh, you know, to find those places in the Bible where the biblical authors themselves retell the biblical story. Uh, and Acts 7 is one of the chief examples of a biblical author retelling uh, the story. Um, J- J- Stephen's doing many things in that story, just for the purposes of this conversation. Um, one of the things that he's doing is he's showing how the uh, righteous prophet or the righteous deliverer um, uh, uniformly 
throughout Israel's history always gets rejected uh, by the people of Israel. And so that happens with Joseph, and it happens with Moses, and it happens with David. Uh, and even Solomon builds the temple, but then the people of Israel use it for idolatrous purposes in a way that it was never intended to be used. Uh, and uh, the conclusion of his speech uh, is, uh, as your fathers did, so now have you done with Jesus the Messiah. And and there's all sorts of other kind of textual indicators that we could go through there in terms of language that he uses to describe Joseph that, you know, either in Luke or in Acts is used to describe Jesus in terms of some of the designations that are used to talk about him. Um, and, uh, but, but I think what Joseph is doing there is he's drawing a line from Joseph to Moses to David. Notice the covenants there, Abrahamic covenant, mm-hmm. Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. Um, and he's showing like, look, each of these covenant deliverers, they were all rejected. They're part of this pattern that was anticipating some sort of ultimate culmination, which you Pharisees and priests in Jerusalem have now fulfilled by crucifying the Lord of glory. Um, and so I, I think uh, Stephen is making explicit in that speech. Joseph is part of this pattern that's ultimately now culminated in Jesus the Messiah. You're right. That's that speech has so much to it. But that point really stood out to me at the end of your book, uh, talking about how Stephen looked back and saw that story and then used it to point to Christ. And of course, their reaction to Christ uh, was was a really great uh, way to ignite our thinking biblically about the story of Joseph and how it points to Christ. And this is um, uh, Stephen is just doing what Jesus has already done. Uh, so if you look at, uh, I believe, Mark 12, Mark 12 um, uh, corresponding passages uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, Jesus, when he's telling the parable of the tenants, uh, right? So you have uh, the vineyard owner and he's got tenants and um, uh, he sends, um, you know, representatives to go address these tenants, uh, you know, who aren't taking care of the vineyard. Uh, and then finally, the vineyard owner says, I'll send my son. Uh, and they're not going to refuse my son. And so he sends his son uh, to the to the tenants of the vineyard. And as Jesus tells the story, he says, the tenants saw the son coming from far off. And they said in Greek, dute apoktenomen, uh, come, let us kill him. And that phrase is used only one other time in the Bible, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's what the brothers of Joseph say when the beloved son, Joseph, is coming to them and they say, come, let us kill him. Mm. So I think what uh, uh, Jesus is doing there, he's he's also drawing from uh, Isaiah 5 and other Old Testament passages, but he's summarizing the history of Israel as the story of Joseph. Mm -hmm. You know, he's saying, uh, look, this this has been Israel's pattern. And, uh, you know, we see that we see that pattern kind of most distinctly and preeminently uh, in, in the story of Joseph. But what, what Jesus is also doing there is he's using the language of Genesis 37. Here's the beloved son who's coming to address the, you know, the unfaithful tenant owners. Uh, so he's recounting Israel's history, but he's also 
pointing to the future, right? He's, he's, he's talking about his own context and his own life. What's Jesus doing there? Who's the beloved son in that story? Well, it's Joseph, but it's also Jesus. Jesus is distri- describing himself as the beloved son sent from the father to the tenant owners with the language of Joseph, the beloved son being sent to his brothers. Mm. So even Jesus himself is forging a connection between himself and Joseph seeing himself as the fulfillment of that pattern. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. I had not thought about that in the parable of the tenants before, but uh, once you lay that out and there's so many places like this in the book, it's hard not to see other places. You know, I, in this series uh, of books, these new studies in biblical theology, uh, I feel like there's a great balance between kind of technical academic writing. I mean, this started as a dissertation and is certainly aimed at influencing the scholarly conversations around Joseph and around biblical theology. Uh, but at the same time, I would recommend it to somebody who's just an interested Bible reader and a layperson who can um, sort through some of the original languages uh, and get to this really awesome way of reading this story in, in Scripture. What were you hoping, and, and maybe this has come true, what what were you expecting the response to be for maybe both of those groups? So in a scholarly sense, what are you hoping that the book achieves or sparks or leads to? And then uh, for somebody who's just like, well, I'm just working on a Bible reading plan, and I want to see Scripture more fully. I want to see uh, with that lens of biblical theology. What what would you hope for that person? Yeah, Um you know, brother, I don't know if I had like great ambitions for it kind of in the scholarly arena. Um, uh, I hope that it, um, uh, you know, I, I hope it serves as kind of an, an apologetic uh, against uh, the assertions of critical scholars who want to suggest that um, uh, Joseph comes from the Solomonic wisdom tradition and therefore doesn't have any sort of meaningful re- relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, to the, to the story of creation. Uh, so I, I hope there that at the very least, um, it is a, a, a textual defense showing that that type of assertion just doesn't follow uh, the data that's on the page, you know, and, and isn't honest uh, with with the text itself. Um, so I, I, I hope that maybe it's useful along those lines uh, within the realm of scholarship to um uh, to um, uh, kind of reinvigorate an evangelical understanding of of the Joseph story, or, or at least defend an evangelical understanding of the Joseph story. Uh, you know, I hope among other scholars, you know, I've, I trust that uh, there are so many guys out there who could do such better work on the Joseph story. Um, and, and I hope maybe that this will, um, uh, you know, prompt some people more gifted than me uh, to do that work. Uh, you know, even, you know, I wrote this now four or five years ago, even though the book has just come out, uh, and, and we just went through the Joseph story on Bible talk. And I thought, oh man, I wish I could go back and rewrite that book. <laughs> you know, I just, <laughs> that always I just feel like even now, I just feel like I know so much more about the, the Joseph story. And, um, yeah, so, so I hope that if it's a compelling defense of the idea that Joseph is indeed a type of the Messiah, uh, that yeah, others others would come along and and kind of even make a better case for that than I've made, um, because I I think that's true and I think it's the way we should read the Joseph story and I I would I would love for that to just kind of be firmly entrenched in our understanding of Genesis thirty seven to fifty, uh, you know, in terms of uh, lay people and 
and pastors. Uh, I wrote this dissertation because I, I wanted to figure out how to preach the Joseph story. Um, mm. And I, I wanted to write it in a way that would help other pastors preach the Joseph story in a way that would point people to the hope of the gospel. So um, uh, because of that, I, you know, even, even as a dissertation, I, I, I had that in mind. I tried to write it with pastors in view. I, I tried as much as possible to keep most technical discussions uh, in the footnotes uh, so that it wouldn't kind of just detract uh, from the reading experience that that most pastors would be have would have using it in sermon preparation. Um, so if you know if if it helps pastors uh, point to the glory of Jesus Christ and and the work of Christ is our only hope for the forgiveness of sins uh, while they're preaching through Genesis thirty seven to fifty, then I think it's a success, and I'm super thrilled if if pastors find it useful in that way. Um, and then of course for uh, for just members of churches, I, you know, I hope it does the same thing. I hope it, I hope it helps them read their Bible better. Um, you know, Old Testament history is tough. Uh, it can often be a locked box for many Christians because, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament narrators, they don't often kind of insert themselves into the narrative and say, Hey everybody, this was bad because right? Right. they, ex- they expect you to be able to read in light of the covenants and read in light of the biblical storyline. So, you know, if, if, if I've helped kind of unlock uh, just these 14 chapters of Old Testament narrative uh, for some Christians, help them read it in light of the biblical storyline, in light of Genesis, in light of uh, uh, the Lord's revelation of himself in Jesus, then great. That's that's what I was hoping for. Well, I think it's certainly achieved that. And I, I learned a lot from it and uh, have passed it on. And I hope people get it, read it. It's called from Prisoner to Prince, The Joseph Story in Biblical Theology by Samuel Amati. Uh, just a great, great book. And again, uh, the discipline of biblical theology is something that anyone can learn. Scholars, lay people, Bible readers. Um, it's, I think, a great way to teach the Bible to kids and uh, to preach. And so I'm very thankful for it. And uh, thanks for coming on our podcast, Sam. Thanks so much for having me, brother. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.